This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. An horrific incident in San Antonio, Texas, puts America's immigration policy under the spotlight. Tonight, stunning new evidence in what officials are calling the nation's deadliest case of human smuggling. What can Joe Biden do to fix the problem at the southern border? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. This scenario that played out the other day was one that I've, I've, I've dreaded was going to come for some time now. In fact, on, on my first letter that I wrote to D.C., uh, it talked about this very scenario, people dying in the back of an 18-wheeler. At the end of June, authorities in San Antonio, Texas, opened the back of an abandoned truck to find that inside were the bodies of more than 50 dead men and women, migrants who had made the journey from across the southern border in extreme heat. As we record, four men have been charged in relation to those deaths. But that awful event has led to scrutiny from all sides of the Biden administration's approach to immigration, with Republicans saying it's too weak and Democrats saying it's too harsh. I arrived to the United States with my family when I was just three years old. I had my third birthday in Arizona. Sylvia Rodriguez-Vega is an artist and scholar in California. We moved from Chihuahua, Mexico, which is just south of Texas, and we wanted a better life. My mom specifically wanted to be away from um, cycles of alcoholism and violence that were very prevalent in our hometown, in our family, and we wanted to start over, essentially. That's uh, when my family has told me about our migration. When news broke of the migrants found in San Antonio, commentators quickly asked why anyone would make such a dangerous journey. As Sylvia knows, it's not an easy decision to make. It's a very difficult decision. It's an impossible decision where one is choosing between a very unlivable situation. And so many people who migrate are at risk of, have been told that if they don't leave within the week, within the day, they will be killed. Their family members will be killed. Um, There's such difficult decisions where people are willing to risk possibly dying versus definitely dying in their homeland. So that's the why. What about the how? How did your family do it? 
So during that time in the 90s, it was much easier to cross. We had a visa and our visa expired uh, uh, the next year after we arrived. And so we became undocumented, but we didn't migrate across the border without documents. We had a visa, which is very unlikely now. And most of people who are undocumented come with some sort of documentation that later expires. So there's all the risks of the journey itself. But once a migrant has made that journey and has somehow got into the United States, the risk, the peril doesn't end there. Just tell us something about what it is like and and something of those risks to be undocumented in the United States. Seeing what people go through to get to places like Arizona, many, many have died every single year uh, because of heat, because of dehydration. And similarly in Texas, many people drown trying to cross through the river. And once you arrive, it doesn't get much easier because of anti-immigrant laws. There's no protections. There aren't avenues to citizenship. It's not as simple as people make it seem of just get in line and come legally. There is no line. And so when they arrive, they're in these very precarious situations of abusive labor, abusive working conditions, struggling with finding homes, finding community, while at the same time, many people still having to pay off their arrival, which is thousands of dollars that they do not have, to the people who help them cross, to the systems that allow for this this journey to happen. It sometimes doesn't leave people for months or even years, that fear of the knock on the door from officials that will reveal that somebody exposed, that somebody doesn't have the relevant documents. It's that criminalisation, I suppose, that would hang over people for, it could be for many, many years. There's been this effort to deter people from trying to cross the southern border that has gone on for many years. It predates the Biden administration, the Trump administration. This idea that if you tell people, look, if you get here uh, and you are undocumented, you're going to be treated like a criminal. Why hasn't that policy of deterrence, that threat of criminalization, deterred more people, stopped more would-be migrants and migrants from making the journey? I think the answer is that prevention through deterrence and attrition through enforcement does not work. Those policies simply don't work when the conditions in places that have been exploited by the United States, that have been made to be living in poverty uh, and in violence, are much harder than the possibilities of suffering a family deportation, separation, death, being far away from your families without ever being able to see them possibly again. Economically, with climate change, more natural disasters happening, situations are are unlivable. And I think the, the prediction of success, of making it to the United States, of figuring things out, definitely outweighs you know, the, the actual experience of migrating and arriving to the U.S. and living in the U.S. But situations are so dire that people are willing to make the trek north. Uh, I read recently that people often overestimate their chances of making it and underestimate 
the risks, which fits with what you're saying. But the driver is, as you've described it, desperation with their with this with the status quo, and therefore, therefore people take enormous risks. What would you have the Joe Biden administration do, especially in the days that have followed this horrific um, event with uh, more than fifty dead in San Antonio? I think that the damage done by the previous administrations is so deep. We need a complete change of policy, of mindset, of heart around what we think is humane and what we think is allowable. The calls to abolish ICE are definitely on point in terms of understanding that ICE... ICE, of course, being the entity that deals with immigration as an issue and enforcement. Exactly. Immigration and customs enforcement. I think that on top of remedying what happened in the last administration, I think that many, we know many of the children are still separated from their parents, from their families. I think that we need to end detention. I think that migrants who are fleeing places where there's violence and poverty should be allowed to claim asylum. So that's the picture for those who come into the United States. What about the reaction of those who are already there? How should America, how should the Biden administration handle immigration? My name is Pedro Gerson, and I am an associate professor of law at California Western, where I teach uh, criminal immigration law mainly. After seeing what unfolded in San Antonio, Pedro wrote a piece for Slate, where he argued that Americans of all political stripes were to blame for the dozens of migrants who had died, pulling no punches in how the Biden administration needs to take responsibility. The Biden administration is complicit in that it has not changed the foundational logic of U.S. immigration policy which focuses on the idea that uh, the first and most important thing with regards to immigration policy is to stop it, right? And so a a lot of the decisions that the Biden administration has made, even though admittedly it has changed uh, some of the more radical approaches from from the Trump administration, the majority of the policy has not really um, sort of veered away from the idea that deterrence is the cornerstone of policy. And one example of that, a very clear example, is that when Kamala Harris, who took over sort of immigration agenda, went down to Central America for a trip to the Northern Triangle countries, and there she very explicitly said, don't come. There are legal methods by which migration can and should occur. But we, as one of our priorities, will discourage illegal migration. Once you kind of see, you know, the policy under the prism of that, you know, that rhetorical approach, you start noticing that things like, for example, not ending Title 42. Just before we jump on, just to explain what Title 42 is for people who are new to this subject. So Title 42 is a little known or previously little known clause of a health law, which allowed the U.S. government to exclude uh, people from entering 
the United States for health-related reasons. And so when the pandemic started, it was enacted by the Trump administration to say, we're not going to let anybody in because of the fear of COVID. However, uh, since the beginning, it was really questioned whether or not the efforts to stop the spread would be affected by allowing asylum seekers to enter. And nowadays, with borders basically open, with the mask mandate in airlines done away with by a federal court, really, there is no policy going on to prevent the spread, as we've seen. You know, we, we have a huge case count. And yet, Title 42 is still ongoing. And I suppose what the Biden administration would say in response to that argument and the argument you made in that piece, the slate would be, well, what is the alternative from telling people don't come? The alternative is to say to people, come, the borders open and any society has to have some limits. Otherwise, you know, there could be hundreds of millions of people would come and therefore surely you're not advocating fully open borders. Well, that's not necessarily true. But you could have a much more open regime, right? So I think that there are a lot of folks who are talking about open borders now. And the reality, I think, which is in your question, is that you know it's not a palatable political point. And, and I get that. And I think that that's true. But uh, that does not mean that there are not legal ways in which migration could be increased. And here's, I think, the the point, right? They are put on the back foot by the Republican opposition to immigration, right? Uh, immigration is a very mobilizing force. And the, the approach of the Biden administration has been to acquiesce, to say, yes, yes, we are trying to limit, right? Every time that someone says, oh, Biden and his open borders, they try to say, no, they're not open borders, right? They're trying to convince the other side that, in fact, they are governing the border with a smudge. And Republicans don't believe them. So if voters aren't going to believe it, they might as well turn around and say, okay, what we're going to do is try to enact policies that help people who want to come here come in a more orderly way, which is increasing at proposing and increasing avenues for legal migration. They can be creative. But I think the first step is to just say, migration is good. It is not a problem. What do you make of the hardball political argument, and our focus on this podcast is, is is politics, that will say, look, the you know, morally, we get what you're saying, Pedro, but politically, in the United States of America in 2022, you have to seem or sound tough on migration, especially when it's framed and branded as illegal migration. That, you know, if you advocated the kind of open, looser case for immigration as a positive good that you've just mentioned, you know, you, you would tank politically. What would you say to that argument? And you do hear it from some in the Democratic Party. Well, I think they're tanking politically either way, right? We see poll after poll showing the Biden administration's popularity is falling. And, you know, maybe it, I think the argument could be rather that it is because a lot of the promises of the more progressive type have kind of fallen by the wayside. I just don't think it has been tested to say, let's have a more immigration positive message, right? I mean, and and it's not so long ago that Republicans had embraced that message and, you know, they didn't lose so many votes, right? Mitt Romney, I mean, was not open borders by any means, but he had a more moderate uh, language about migration. And I want you to also know this, I, I will prioritize efforts that strengthen legal immigration and make it more transparent and easier. And recognizing its value. And George Bush was, you know, he tried famously to pass an immigration reform. 
But doesn't it make sense to help the Border Patrol do their job by saying, if you're going to come and do a job, there is a legal way to do it. So if Biden would try or his administration or folks in the Democratic Party would try to, you know, sound a more pro-immigration, I'm not saying open borders, right? And obviously it should respond to the particular districts and to the particular uh, location where people are, but even just at the federal level to say, the problem with immigration is that it needs to be managed. And if we try to stop it, then more people are going to die. I think bringing, bringing to light, I think what I try to talk about in that article, which is deterrence leads to death. One uh, defense that the Biden administration has offered, almost sometimes without spelling it out, is, look, OK, you may not love what we're doing, but we're better than the previous lot. We're better than Trump and the Trump administration on immigration. Just tell us how much damage, in your view, uh, Trump did when it comes to the treatment of, of migrants to the country and how much of that Trump record or Trump action has been undone and reversed by Team Biden? I think without a doubt, the Biden administration is preferable to Trump. I mean, the, the damage that Trump did is incalculable, as is shown, I think, by part of our conversation, which is first and foremost, shifting the possibilities of what is tolerable a lot to the right. But, you know, some of the most heinous policies of the Trump administration, right, the Muslim ban, the family separation, right, which meant that every person who was caught crossing the border, not at a port of entry, would be immediately detained and uh, separated from the family. They, they would go and, and face criminal prosecution. They eliminated that. Now they've tried to restart DACA, which is a program that allows uh, individuals who've been in the United States for since they were very young, who did not choose to come here, but their parents did, to get some sort of legalized status. It's not full. They can't enjoy many of the rights that either a visa or obviously a passport would grant them, but they have the ability to work and the ability to be more integrated, I think, into a legal framework. These are the so-called dreamers. Exactly, exactly. So the, the Biden administration has sought to reestablish DACA. So obviously all of that is an improvement, right? And, and I would never say, oh, it's the same thing. I think that that's a very dangerous thing because, you know, prior, prior to my previous job, I was uh, an immigration attorney. And the thing about the Trump administration was their indiscriminate threat of enforcement. And the fear that was felt across all of the communities was massive. And I think that, you know, the Biden administration is trying to do much more targeted uh, enforcement. And so this sense of general panic and anxiety is somewhat down. But I still think that the underlying logic of what immigration is and how the U.S. can respond to it has not changed. And further, you know, when administration changes, it leaves a possibility of going back to the Trump-like agenda much more easily, right? Because we haven't really moved a lot to the left. You're not the only one um, making this point. Um, politicians within the Democratic Party, Beto O'Rourke, Julian Castro of Texas, are also faulting the White House for being too slow to overturn the Trump-era policies. Uh, Julian Castro saying, Tragedies like the one that happened in San Antonio are going to become more and more common the longer our country keeps Trump-era anti-immigrant, anti-asylee policies in place. So you're not, you know, you're not speaking 
uh, from the wilderness here. This is becoming a view inside the Democratic Party. Those people who are of that view, what would they have Joe Biden do that he is, in terms of specific tangible terms, what would they have him do that he is currently not doing? So I think... One is crafting a legislative package and proposing it, which included more avenues to legal immigration. Given the politics we know, you know, that 50-50, not even that, hold in the Senate with Manchin and Cinema, the two senators who are hardly on board. Is that going to ever, would that have a chance of passing a Senate that Joe Biden hardly has control over? I mean, you know, maybe not, but I still think that putting out there a package uh, and saying, let's, you know, let's try and do it. There there are pro-immigrant uh, Republicans, right? I mean, there, there could be done something uh, along the lines of what was done with guns, right? I think prior to the gun legislation that was passed, people who said nothing is gonna, nothing, you know, no gun regulation can pass. And what was done was minimal, was, was not enough, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that fatalism only begets fatalism. <laughs> but I just think that it's a matter of, really, really spending the resources. The focus of resource spending from the executive is on policing. And you could imagine that the Biden administration say, well, let's use some of those funds to process more asylum seekers. And finally, I think decreasing the use of immigration detention. Those are two things that I think is within the control of the executive and the Biden administration can move without, you know, I think what you were talking about, which is the legislative gridlock. I'm announcing a program, Unite for Ukraine, a new program to enable Ukrainians seeking refuge to come directly from Europe to the United States. How angry does it make you that while we're talking about where areas in which the Biden administration is, as it were, closing the door on would-be migrants, particularly from south of the border, it is meanwhile speeding up the processing of refugees from Ukraine what do you make of that discrepancy and what do you think explains it? I mean, it doesn't make me angry in the sense that if we're processing refugees, then that's great. But it, it is upsetting in that it shows that there is state capacity to process refugees and asylum seekers. Let's take a, a, a particular case, right? The, the number of uh, Venezuelan asylum seekers in the United States has increased massively over the last year. Venezuela's economy is collapsing. There are food shortages and massive unemployment and little government support for its poorest residents. Starting in 2015, Venezuelans began fleeing to neighboring countries. There we know what the claim is, right? When it's similar to Ukraine in that there is a very defined harm that is happening. There is a very defined reason. And also the cause of the, that harm is a political antagonist of the United States. Right? So that's why I pick Venezuela as a, as a good example, because you would think, well, the United States could then afford Venezuelans, given the swell of migrants arriving, the same protections that it has afforded uh, Ukrainians. Now, there is, they have extended temporary protected status, but I don't think the, the processing or the will to process has been there. And similarly, you know, Cuban refugees are also increasing, same story. And so it just, it is upsetting because there is no political will to help people who are coming from the global South. But even if it doesn't have to do with, say, either implicit or blatant racism, it is hard to find a reason for the administration to not 
attend with such celerity, with such clarity, the plight of refugees who are in a similar situation as the Ukrainians. There are people who had thought that perhaps this tragic event in San Antonio, that that maybe would change the politics around this. There would be sympathy for migrants and people trying to you know, find a new and better life. It's a midterm year. What impact do you think that tragedy might have on public opinion, on how the president responds, on, on, the, on voters, particularly actually in the states that border Mexico? Or do you think it might not have much impact at all when November comes around? What's your view? I don't think it's going to have any impact. There was a similar accident that occurred in Mexico three months ago. Uh, migrants were trapped in a trailer and over 50 died because the t- trailer totaled. And it went in one ear and out the other. And I take that as instructional to to suggest what's going to happen here. Already, it's out of the headlines. It's out of the headlines because tragedy after tragedy keeps occurring. And because, you know, for a lot of people, these stories are, well, you know, they deserved it. And so, unfortunately, I don't think that it, it moves the needle in any direction. I think that there's, here in this country, a refusal to recognize the incompatibility between an economic regime that's aimed at eliminating borders through free trade and immigration policies that are aimed at total control of them. And until there's a realization that those two things are incompatible, you know, tragedies like this are going to occur and then they're going to be swiftly forgotten. Silvia Rodriguez-Vega, we are speaking in the week that began with the 4th of July, Independence Day. And whether or not uh, you uh, or others celebrate that day, it is a day where millions of Americans take pride in their history and in the in the American ideal, which is often that the country is a nation of immigrants. There, the words are inscribed on the base of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, Give me your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. All over America will be people who will say they are proud of their immigrant roots, whether they're Irish, Italian or Jewish or whatever. Is it your sense that America is moving away from that dream of being, that myth even, of being a nation of immigrants? I believe that America is confused. I believe that it is deeply ironic to celebrate the independence 4th of July with these ideals of freedom, with these ideals of exceptionalism, with ideals of being a free nation, being a land of opportunity, being a place for immigrants to come when immigrants are not allowed to come into the United States and become part of the American imaginary of what it means to be part of this country. And so I believe that there is a disconnect and there is a deep reckoning with ourselves in really understanding if we are living to those ideals or not. And I think we aren't at the moment. My thanks to Sylvia Rodriguez-Vega and Pedro Gerson for joining me on the podcast this week. That is all from us. Before I go, as many of you will know, the Women's Euro 2022 Championships kicked off this week 
and so did The Guardian's new Women's Football Weekly podcast, hosted by Faye Carruthers with Susie Rack, some Football Weekly regulars, and a bunch of other journos and ex-pros. The podcast will run throughout the tournament until the final on Sunday the 31st of July. That's three times a week. So make sure to search, subscribe and listen to The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, the executive producer, Max Sanderson. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.